the year of the Lord's favour. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, mm. to proclaim freedom for the captives and to release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of the mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendour. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that, that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you, will be carry, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the people. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and the garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. The uh, final chapters of Isaiah are, are, are taken up with <clears throat> wonderful kind of uh, lyrical, could we say, poetic descriptions of the glorious future awaiting the people of God. Uh, when God's rule and reign becomes open and obvious and uh, the final state of God's people. And in the midst of that, we have Isaiah chapter 61, where we have a prophet figure, I gather, <coughs> proclaiming, announcing that those changes of fortune for the people of God. A, a, a prophet figure, I say, because uh, the Spirit of God is upon him. So the, uh, chapter 61 opens, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. So notice it's this prophet figure speaking. And I would take it that this is the fifth and final of the so-called servant passages. Some of those servant passages that we read, you know, pre-Easter, around Easter. Uh, chapter 42 chapter 49, chapter 50, chapter 53, the four great servant passages. Now, even though the word servant is not mentioned here, I, I gather it is this same servant figure who is being described here, as in the earlier passages. The first of those servant songs, as we call them, chapter 42, verse 1, is, uh, Behold my servant whom I uphold, I've chosen, I've put my spirit upon him, it says. I put my God speaking here. I put my spirit upon him, and now the servant himself speaks about the same experience, the same spiritual equipping, uh, 
uh, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. So I gather that's who is speaking here, this servant figure who, of course, we would identify with Jesus because Jesus himself says, hey, that's me. <laughs> there in the book of Isaiah, that, that, that's, that's anticipating and speaking about me and what I will do. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me and he's been sent uh, by God. Uh, sent by God on a mission as, as the prophet's uh, were. Uh, he has sent me. Notice that expression, and it's quite important. So, sent to do a whole lot of things. But when we look at the first verse or so, uh, what is this spirit equipped prophet figure going to do? Well, he's going to do a lot of talking because uh, that's what prophets do. You know, they were great talkers, weren't they? All my kids went to uni. I'm a failure as a father. I never produced a scientist or a doctor or a no, they're all, they're all talkers. Don't know where they got it from. No, it's their mother, I'm convinced. But they're all talkers and writers, you know what I mean? So they've gone into media and other kind of stuff like that, you know, publics. They're all talkers and writers. Well, the prophets, right? Uh, they're all talkers. They, they, they come and bring the message of God. And so it's a talking ministry that's being described here. He's been sent to proclaim... A message. Yeah, the role of the Old Testament prophets was to speak for God and to get in trouble because of it. In other words, the two characteristics of the prophets, they spoke God's word and they were persecuted. And the ultimate expression of that is what we see in these servant songs, as we call them, the servant of God. Remember the word servant, not entirely, but most of the time is a way of describing a prophet in the Old Testament. The servants of God were the prophets of God. So here we've got this prophet figure whose job is to talk and because people often don't like what the prophets say, they get in trouble and they suffer for it. That's what's being described here. Well, chapter 61 doesn't bring out the suffering aspect. Remember chapter 53 focuses on that and is famous for that, the suffering of that prophet servant figure of course who is fulfilled by Jesus but but here is his speaking role so what's he doing he's announcing he's bringing good tidings good news the gospel to the afflicted that's what verse 1 says he's binding up the brokenhearted by giving presumably by bringing a message of encouragement to brokenhearted people he's proclaiming notice the pro the speaking talking preaching proclaiming word he's proclaiming liberty to the captives. Uh, verse 2 is proclaiming the, uh, the day of the Lord. Uh, he's comforting mourning people in verse 3 by speaking a message of comfort. Remember how Isaiah 40 says, comfort, comfort my people. In other words, make sure you comfort my people. So all the way we look at it, um, he's doing nothing but talking. Of course, that's what the prophets did, didn't they? That was their main role. How else are we going to have the message of God? How else are we going to know what God is, God is thinking? God speaks through his prophets, so largely it is a speaking and a talking role. And of course, Jesus, he's more than a prophet, isn't he? We'd have to join some other religion if we merely say Jesus is a prophet, right? 
He, but he is a prophet, but more than a prophet. There's a lot of prophet in Jesus. For example, how he taught, the parables. Prophets used parables, wordplay, humour. You know, a lot of the techniques, you know, if I can use the word technique, a lot of how Jesus taught, it reminds us of the Old Testament prophets in lots of ways. He was a prophet. He got in trouble for what he said. He was killed. So I'm not bringing Jesus down to the level of a prophet, but he is a prophet and so much more, isn't he? He's God in the flesh. He's the divine son of God and so forth. But don't ignore the prophet aspect of who and what Jesus did. He brought God's word. He's the ultimate revelation of God's word and truth, of course. Uh, and he got in trouble for it. He suffered. <clears throat> so here we have a prophet figure and, of course, Jesus himself, we, we have it on his authority that, that he is the one who is anticipated, who's spoken here, uh, spoken of here in, in Isaiah chapter 61, and he's announcing a whole new era. The, the year, uh, the day of the Lord's favour, uh, as it says here in, in verse 2. The, the year of God's favour, the day of God's Vengeance, in other words, a whole new era and period, a whole new chapter in history, the time of God's favour towards his people where he will fix up all that is wrong. And uh, this is the final state of blessing and good fortune for the people of God. And, and Jesus, of course, picks this up, doesn't he? So very famously, let's just turn over there for a moment, in, in Luke chapter 4, the synagogue in Nazareth, And they give him the scroll of Isaiah, uh, and he reads it. Now, I sometimes use this passage with my students, maybe just slightly less than serious, uh, when the students say, why do we have to learn Hebrew? Jesus knew Hebrew. He could read the Old Testament in Hebrew. Don't we want to be like Jesus? <laughs> yeah, I got them on that one, didn't I? So, but uh, there's... Other things we could say, of course, but, but here's Jesus in uh, Luke chapter 4. This is the very passage in Isaiah that uh, he reads from in the synagogue. And uh, he reads these very words and he says that this day this has been fulfilled in their hearing. So this prophet figure with his speaking message um, announcing the... Uh, 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 announcing the, the, the new era of salvation, Jesus says, that's me. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, where he stops? What are we to make of that? So notice in Luke's gospel, he, he, has, he says the, when he's reading, and of course Luke is only summarising, but it's interesting where Luke, presumably Jesus did read the whole passage, but, but, but summarising what Jesus is doing, notice that uh, Luke finishes the quotation... Um, in what is in effect the first line of verse 2, Isaiah 61, proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, he doesn't have Jesus read the next line. Or it's not explicit that Jesus did read the, re the re next line, the day of vengeance of our God. Now, now what are we to make of that? What are we to make of that? Well, I'll, I'll say a few things about that in a moment, but uh, 
here is Jesus announcing and talking these things. Of course, Jesus didn't just talk. Talk is cheap, all right? Everyone's good at talking, aren't they? C.S. Lewis, all men give good advice, he is saying, in tongue, tongue in cheek. We're all good at talking. Um, you know, we gather in groups and we chat about stuff. You know, after 10 minutes, we've solved the world's problems. You know, talk is cheap. Jesus didn't just come and talk, did he? But he then did. So what we have in the Gospels is Jesus, and Isaiah 61 here, this prophet figure Jesus announcing the time of salvation is come, but then we see Jesus doing what Isaiah 61 says God is going to do, you see. Of course, it's the year of the Lord's favour. And the day of vengeance of our God, Isaiah 61 announces what God, the, the time of salvation that God will bring in and therefore it's highly significant, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't just feel, fulfil the prophet aspect of Isaiah 61. He does that, announcing salvation, but then he does stuff and he begins to bring in this time of salvation. He does what only God can do. Only God can save and rescue. Only God can bring his kingdom in, in its fullness. And that's what we be see Jesus beginning to do in his ministry. And that's the great thing about the Christian faith. It isn't just all talk. But stuff happens in the Christian faith. Yes, the world is good at, full of good advice and probably wholesome philosophies and claims and assertions and promises. But Jesus doesn't just do things, but by his acts of gracious power that we could call his miracles or his signs, through his death and resurrection and someday soon through his coming again, he does stuff. Christianity does things and it brings change. And that change has already begun. If we wanted to, I could get every converted person, you know, hop up and tell us something of the difference that Jesus has made in your life. Now, you haven't quite sprouted wings yet, right? You're not quite an angel yet, so to speak. You know what I mean? We're, we're still on the way. Of course we are. But Jesus does stuff. It's just not all talk. He changes people he does things in people's lives that the doctors, the psychologists, the social workers, they're not going to be able to work out how did that happen. Jesus has already begun to set about to change the world. And he started in the lives of Christian people and he works through Christian organisations. The change has already begun to happen. Christianity does things. In other words, the Christian faith is not all theory. We don't just need theory. We don't just need a wonderful golden philosophy, do we? We need something that's going to do something. And that's the glorious thing about the Christian faith. The time of salvation has begun through Jesus Christ. And uh, that's what is described here. It's the year of the Lord's favour. And then as, as we've been discovering that the prophets love using images, they love using word pictures 
And so how is that salvation described? Well, it's the difference between mourning, you know, grieving, beginning of verse 3, and, but what do people look like when they're rejoicing? Well, they've got flowers in their hair, you see, and they've got olive oil on their skin, a garland instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, a mantle of praise, they're all dressed up and so forth. So the first half of verse 3 gives us a word picture of someone all dressed up, you know, ready for the party, ready, ready for the wedding, so to speak. Uh, a, a picture of the gladness and joy of this time of salvation that's going to be brought in through Jesus, all, all dressed up to celebrate. Uh, uh, the other word picture, quite different from the world of agriculture, the last part of verse 4, the, the picture of God's people flourishing and strong like trees, like the Ents, you know, in Lord of the Rings, you know, the Ents growing green. So, so there, there we are, the picture of, of, of the time of salvation, God's people like oaks, like a plantation, flourishing. So beautiful word pictures of the salvation announced and being brought in by God through Jesus. Um, so we've got something to proclaim to the world, haven't we? Talk is cheap. But Christian talk, when we're proclaiming God's truth, when it's the gospel, when it's something out of the Bible, it's not just talk, but then stuff starts happening. In a church where the Bible is taught, things begin to change. The life of the church is renewed. Christian community is created. And lives are changed. And those Christians then begin doing stuff around Port Macquarie and, and finding ways to be useful. And Jesus is man or woman or boy or girl or young person, wherever they... You know, stuff starts happening. Because the Christian faith is not just talk. But why did Jesus finish or why did he stop well, Luke in his gospel Luke chapter 4 why is he presented as only reading the first line of verse 2 but not the second he said he, he had come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour but he doesn't read then the next line the day of vengeance of our God now, now we can't take it the explanation can't be that Jesus didn't believe in judgement or couldn't preach judgment, because we know he did. He certainly knew how to blast the Pharisees, didn't he? In fact, particularly in Matthew's Gospel, he's all the time talking about judgment, judgment on Jerusalem. And if it wasn't for what Jesus regularly talked about, hell, we wouldn't know much about hell, because he's often talking about that most difficult of judgment topics, hell and punishment. So Jesus can't have stopped reading on the first line because he didn't believe and he wasn't announcing the day of vengeance. No, throughout his ministry, he's proclaiming both God's favour and God's judgment. And that's probably the answer, isn't it? As, as I said earlier, 
earlier talk, in the Bible often salvation and judgment are the two sides of the coin. If you proclaim salvation for God's people, that's going to be vengeance upon their enemies and their opposers. You're either one who is saved or on that great day of judgment when we will receive salvation in its fullness, it will also be the time of judgment for those who have rejected Jesus. Two sides of the coin, you can't have the one without the other. In this particular passage, of course, the focus of the passage as a whole is positive and it's on the salvation of God's people. There is the other side, of course. Vengeance upon their enemies, a reckoning for those who have made things hard for his people. There is the other side, of course there is, but the focus of chapter 61 is on salvation and and that's probably Luke's point or that's That's why it's presented as it is in Luke chapter 4. The focus is salvation. Now, now, um, notice too how it's expressed. It's the day of vengeance of our God. In other words, our God, the covenant God of Israel. It's vengeance by the covenant God of Israel upon those who are the opponents of his saved people. So the very way it's expressed also makes this vengeance part of the salvation that is coming upon his people. Isaiah 34 verse 8, something similar. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a day of recompense for the cause of Zion. If God is going to save Zion, then he has to have a day of reckoning for those who are the enemies of Zion. You really can't proclaim salvation without judgment um, and there is what we could call the old, the positive doctrine of judgment in the old testament now father brown i hope you like the father brown stories well there's been father brown on tv it's it's, it's all right it's nothing wonderful the father brown stories by gk chesterton make sure you read them there's only about 50 adventures or whatever and they are a really good read uh, G.K. Chesterton, who was a converted Catholic, uh, but had some real spiritual wisdom. And in the Father Brown stories, you know, he has some real spiritual gems. And, and one, one of the comments by Father Brown is on this aspect of the positive doctrine uh, of uh, judgment. Father Brown's wisdom... Uh, we need to believe in the doomsday, this is Father Brown, that, that retribution will come on the real offender because here suffering often seems to fall on the wrong person. The day of, the ju- of judgment is when everything is put right. Good old Father Brown, good old G.K. Chesterton preaching through <laughs> the lips of Father Brown. That, that, that's right. We need the day of judgment. Because everything can't be put right. Salvation can't fully and finally happen. Things can't be put right until the doomsday. So the real offender is punished. Instead of, well, you could tell me better than I can that life's not fair. (laughs) And bad things happen to good people. And uh, yeah. Lovely Christian people have tremendous difficulties at times and awful heartache. It's a fact of life, isn't it? But it's not how it should be. 
And so there's a doomsday. There's got to be a judgment where everything is put right. So, so in this passage, yes, salvation and, and judgment, two sides of the same coin. We have to have both. But it's, and there has to be a balance, but that balance is not necessarily 50-50. As I said, in this passage, the focus is on the glorious salvation coming to the people of God and there's just a little reminder here, oh yes, judgment. Other passages of the Bible, and the prophets are famous for this, pages and pages of judgment, don't we have some good news? There's always both, but it's not always exactly 50-50 in any particular Bible passage. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater the salvation of God, but we also believe in the judgment of God. Why did Jesus come? He came to save, didn't he? Yes. But if we push away his saving hand, it's going to mean judgment. Jesus himself says so. The focus of the ministry of Jesus is on salvation, but there's always the other side. So there's two extremes that need to be avoided, don't they? The first extreme is to never preach on judgment. The other extreme is to always preach on judgment. <laughs> the truth, the biblical balance is in the middle there, isn't it? We believe in judgment and salvation. And, and one of the reasons this is just such a delightful chapter, and we love it, and it's one of the more well-known chapters of Isaiah, maybe because Jesus quotes it, but also because we have this beautiful, poetic description of the state, the final and full state of salvation waiting for God's people. Let's just bring out a couple of aspects. So verse 4, they'll build up the ancient ruins. See, God's judged people. The Assyrians have been through, the Babylonians have been through, you know what I mean? Uh, the kingdom of Judah, God's people have been judged severely. Cities have been destroyed. In this picture of future salvation, we use that imagery, the economic rebuilding of the land. They'll build up the ancient ruins. They'll raise up the former cities. They'll repair the ruined cities and so forth. And who's going to do this? This is the best place. Foreign workers. Aliens. Which doesn't mean bug-eyed monsters from outer space. No, no. The, it's foreigners, isn't it? Foreigners. Your version might say that. My version, verse eight, 5. Aliens. Uh, aliens shall stand and feed your flocks. Foreigners shall be your ploughmen and vine dressers. It, it's imagery, but the picture is of foreigners... Uh, one of the roles of the nations will be to build up what has been destroyed. This picture of salvation of the people of God. They're going to do the back-breaking work, you see, ploughing. I've never done it, but it doesn't strike me as easy. And vine dressing. There's a lot of bending over grapevines to pick the vines, you know what I mean? Let's, let's get the foreign workers to do it. That, that's the picture. It's quite a nationalistic type picture. Don't, don't be disturbed by that it's imagery but the good times will come and uh, so foreigners will do all the backbreaking work but the people of God they'll be called priests and ministers we're all going to become priests 
and ministers. What this means, of course, is sometimes the word priest in the Old Testament doesn't mean, you know, Aaron and his sons and, you know, the tabernacle and all that kind of... Sometimes the word priest is also used in the sense of upper class. Uh, We're told in 2 Samuel chapter 8 that David's sons were priests. David's sons were priests? Were they working in the temple and stuff? Or, you know, no, no, what it means is they, they, they were high officials. They had a, had a kind of upper-class role in society as the king's son. So sometimes the word priest has that sense of um, upper-class person. So that's what verse 6 is saying. The people of God will be rewarded and compensated, they will be the upper class. Others will be doing uh, the menial work. And instead of shame and dishonour, see, it'll be a time of reversal, you see. Verse 7, that's it. Compensated for all their suffering, uh, all their loss. Instead of shame, dishonour and loss, they'll receive everlasting joy. Now, let's look at this and let's not be... Sometimes people are embarrassed by this. It's a very physical, earthly, even nationalistic kind of picture, isn't it, of the time of salvation. It it is imagery, but also we're not meant to explain it all away. Sometimes people have that contrast between Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament... It's all very material. You know, when, when reward is talked about, it's all very physical, material, earthly. But when we get to the New Testament, it's all kind of spiritual and lovey-dovey. and That's kind of a false contrast. In the Old Testament and New Testament, the, the reward and blessing of God's people is often very material in how it's described. But it's also spiritual. It's both, physical and spiritual. The same in the New Testament. When Jesus talks in terms of reward, he doesn't just talk in terms of the spiritual. Remember how he says, you know, because of all the suffering and so forth, a hundredfold in this life? Remember if you sell your house and go to Bible college, you'll have a hundredfold in this life, you know. What do you give up for Jesus? I'm not only going to give it back, and a hundredfold. Jesus can speak in those very physical terms as well as spiritual. At the end of the Bible, uh, Revelation chapters 21 and 22, what's the final state of God's people? Are we going to be floating around on clouds in cyberspace? (sighs) You know, just kind of, you know, like wisps of smoke? That's not it. It's the new heavens and the new earth. Heavenly Jerusalem is going to come down to earth. The joining of heaven and earth, the final state of God's people, the new heavens, the new earth, is physical as well as spiritual. So let's not break apart or see as in conflict what the Bible puts together, the physical and the spiritual, and it is here in this very Bible passage. So let's not explain away the physical aspect. When God saves us, he's going to, remember, he's going to save us body and soul. And he's saving us as social creatures. And so he's redeeming society. He's going to redeem and save the world. The physical aspect is at least as important 
as the spiritual, and our passage here ends with rejoicing. Why should it not? Who's speaking in verse 10? I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Is it Isaiah? Possibly. Is it one of the people of God? Is it Zion personified? That's another possibility. I'll greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God. And this rejoicing and praising of God, again, the use of imagery, clothing. We had that earlier. He's clothed me with the garments of salvation. We're going to be like the bridegroom who, uh, yes, has his kind of turban, garland on his head and the bride with her jewels. So so the image of verse 10 is like a wedding day. You know, the, the ultimate day of rejoicing, you know, in ancient society, the wedding day and the, the bride and groom dressed up in all their finery. It's, it's a word picture of the glorious state of salvation. And again, it uses agriculture. So it really is like verse 3, which uses clothing and then agriculture to describe the saving of God's people. We've got the earth with its vegetation springing forth. And uh, so will be the coming of God's salvation. But I do love the the clothing imagery of verse 10, don't you? So ladies, you could give a kind of a more kind of sophisticated analysis of the clothing than I, 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 it's possible for me, but, um, yeah, clothing. Um, Speaking of clothing, how should Christians dress? What should Christians wear to church? Now the answer, a smile. A smile, yeah. Shouldn't we look, if we're God's saved people, shouldn't we look saved? You know, a a miserable Christian is a very poor recommendation of the Christian faith. I think J.C. Ryle said that, so it's not just me saying that. Yeah, what should we wear to church? Well, maybe we should wear a smile. We're God's saved people. We have our sins forgiven. We have a loving Heavenly Father. We can be robbed of everything, but we can't be robbed of God's providence. We've got a new heaven and a new earth. We've got citizenship of the kingdom of God. Shouldn't be able to wipe the smile off a Christian's face. Now, right, we're not always like that, are we? So that's why I'm just reminding you, all right? So uh, new sign outside the church. Dress code, smile, you know, that's right, all, all that kind of thing. And, uh, but here, here is a passage that reminds us of what we're, what we're smiling about. That the God intends to save us fully and completely. Now, if we put our trust in Jesus, we're God's saved people. Of course we are. But we don't yet enjoy all that that will mean. New bodies, you know what I mean? Throw away the devices, the crutches, you know? The, you know, implants and all this stuff won't be necessary. We're only half saved to some extent. And uh, this, this passage, passage is describing our full and complete salvation. Now, in the meantime, we remind ourselves of what is ahead, don't we? No matter how, what difficulties we might be facing at the present, they are going to disappear. Full salvation is going to come. Also, we remind ourselves of these simple joys of life don't we? Simple pleasures like sleep and coffee. <laughs> Not mentioned the Bible, but 
coffee, friends. There's lots of stuff to enjoy that doesn't cost much, and Presbyterians, we're really good at finding stuff that doesn't cost much to enjoy, don't we? So, yeah, the simple things of life. Ecclesiastes, read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's very good on that. The simple joys and pleasures of life that Christians can enjoy, or we should be enjoying more than other people. Because every cup of coffee is a gift from God. Every new, every new day comes from his hand. Yeah, every sunset, every sunset should look more beautiful for a Christian than it does for other people because we know who painted it. The simple joys of life. But also hear the big picture. And that's, that's, remember, that's why we're looking at Isaiah. Isaiah's big picture. This is it. The day will dawn. It, it's almost a law of nature, the last verse. That's what it's saying. It's almost a law of nature that the day of salvation will come. That's how it's expressed. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Just like spring returns every year and the summer warmth comes after the cold of winter and the flowers bloom again, a law of nature, just as certainly the day of salvation is going to dawn. We have God's word for it. He's promised it. He gave his son's blood as a seal and guarantee that it was all going to happen. The whole reason he sent Jesus, to redeem creation and to renew it. It's going to happen. And so let's rejoice ahead of time. And let this wonderful plan of salvation put into perspective just a little bit whatever difficulties, whatever challenges we might be facing at the moment. In other words, not, not to discount, not to lighten the burdens that some people carry. I'd be callous if I was suggesting that. But just to put them in perspective, there is a glorious day coming. We know it's going to happen. God is going to bring it. It's all through Jesus. That day is coming, so let us rejoice in that prospect. Let's have a word of prayer. Yes, Father, we thank you for this great prophet Isaiah. That you gave him such big thoughts, such a grand vision to share. Thank you for his big picture, this great canvas that he paints, the, the panorama of your saving purposes. Thank you that here we look to the very end of time and beyond when the time of salvation will dawn, the new heavens, the new earth, when everything will be put put right when right will be rewarded and what is wrong will be overthrown and punished and Lord we know that it's only by your grace we, we don't deserve to be members of your kingdom or citizens of that new heaven and new earth but it will happen because of your grace 
and through that faith in Jesus you implanted in our hearts. And so we acknowledge that this great salvation is yours from begin to end and we want to praise you. Please, Lord, our prayer is that these things might sink in. This truth might enter our heart at a deeper level. That, that, that we may perhaps be a little bit more cheerful as Christians and better recommendations of the faith. That we might actually look like saved people. So that people want to know what, 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 what do we have that they don't have and how can they have that too. So Lord, we pray that we might be better and more credible witnesses for you in our daily life. And thank you for that little anticipation of salvation we're enjoying this weekend, each other's company. Thank you that time will come when there'll be no more goodbyes. We'll never part again. All your people will be together. And so thank you for your goodness, even on display this weekend. Thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we pray all this through Jesus. Amen.